Um, it's good. Well, welcome back to week two uh, of our study of the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. So you can go ahead and turn there. Galatians chapter 5. If you weren't here last week, the plan for the summer is to study each of these qualities that Paul lists here in Galatians 5 and he, as he describes them as fruit of the Spirit, or what the Spirit produces in our lives. The plan is to take one quality each week, and a number of our, of our guys are going to be working through that, uh, working through each of those qualities. So, giving them a chance to teach the summer. And, um, and learn from them. And last week, we opened our study by asking and answering, really, a couple questions. So if we're going to study the fruit of the Spirit, we need to know what it is. So we asked, what exactly is the fruit of the Spirit? Now, quick review. What do you think? How would you answer that question, based on last week? What is the fruit of the Spirit? Joy. <laughs> Yes, those are examples of the fruit of the Spirit. Good. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Totally. He can read. So that is great. Yeah, so what, what we said is the fruit of the Spirit is, here's a number of components. It's Christ's character, number one. It's Christ's character, and it's produced progressively by the Spirit, So it's the fruit of the Spirit. Christ's character produced progressively by the Spirit. And this happens on our side through faith. As we believe Jesus, as we trust Him, and we live in obedience to Him by faith. So it's Christ's character is produced progressively by the Spirit, and it's through through faith. So that was our first question, and we looked at that in depth last time. And our second question was, why did Paul write this passage? Right? So what, as we're studying a passage, we don't want to just take it out of its context. We want to know, okay, why is this here? What's he addressing so that we can kind of get the HD clarity on this passage? So we learned that this paragraph on the fruit of the Spirit is a corrective against two pitfalls that face the Galatians. Do you remember what they were? I'll give you a hint. They both started with an L. Okay, so legalism was the first pitfall, right? And what was the other one? licentiousness, which is a word you probably never said, but it means uh, like fleshly indulgence. So let's talk about legalism just by review. What is that? Well, legalism is thinking that what we do gains us favor with God. Okay, What we do gains us righteousness. It, it adds to our righteousness. It gives us favor or some kind of merit that God likes us a little bit more because of something we've done or He's, he's willing to accept us based on something we've done. And in Paul's day, some of the professing Jewish Christians were trying to convince these new believers, these Galatian believers, that they needed to submit to Jewish customs to be fully righteous. These are Gentile believers. They receive the Spirit, they're preaching the Gospel, and then there's some some professing Jewish Christians that came in and said, if you want to be fully righteous, if you want to be fully part of the people of God, you need to submit to our customs like circumcision and Sabbath-keeping, those things taught in the Torah, in the, in the Old Covenant. And these folks believed the Gospel, and they likely even said that Jesus' death was necessary. But it just wasn't fully sufficient for righteousness. 
If you want to complete your righteousness and be part of the true people of God, they, they said, you need to become an Israelite. And that happens through circumcision. And it happens through submission to the customs of the Mosaic Law. But Paul would have nothing of that. Because adding anything to the gospel of grace makes it, he says in chapter 1, another gospel. Which he says is really no gospel at all. And it leads people astray. It tempts people to trust in their own merit for righteousness instead of on Christ alone. So instead of an anxious pursuit of growth that tries to gain favor with God, Paul says we should learn to walk by the Spirit who was freely given to us. That's where this passage comes in. So this passage about the fruit of the Spirit protects us from legalism. It reminds us that growth is by the Spirit's power and only by His power in our lives. But it also protects us from that other extreme, which we said was licentiousness. So what is that? Well, licentiousness says something like this. Since we're free in Christ now, how we live doesn't really matter. Basically, the temptation is when we realize that Christ has freed us, that our righteousness isn't dependent on what we've done or we failed to do. The temptation then is, is to think that how we live doesn't matter since we're free. Or it matters very little. And you hear this, I'm sure, a lot on campus, kind of touting our, our Christian freedoms. But Paul's whole point is that God has given you His Spirit now, and His Spirit is your brand new power for obedience. Before you received the Spirit, you had no chance of obeying anything. We're going to look at that today. But now that you have God's own Spirit, you're empowered to obey. And what's more, you're now obligated to pursue love by faith. And that's Paul's whole point. And it's the other corrective given in this passage. He wants us to see in particular that even though we're free, even though we have God's Spirit, that we're not passive in the fruit-bearing process. We're still commanded, he says here, to walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5.16. We're also commanded down in verse 25 to keep in step with the Spirit. If you look over in verse 10 of chapter 6, he says another thing about sowing to the Spirit, that we sow to Him, you know, keeping with that, that uh, agrarian kind of fruit-bearing metaphor, we sow the seeds to the Spirit. So, even as I say those phrases, though, walk by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, you're probably wondering, what does that mean? Like, what exactly what does that look like to walk by the Spirit? How do I do it? Well, it's an interesting phrase for sure when you think about this idea of, of walking by the Spirit, and it's often misinterpreted along with other phrases that Paul uses in this paragraph. Phrases like being led by the Spirit or keeping in step with the Spirit. So we're going to talk about that today, and, and we really need to hone in on this concept because sometimes this phrase is explained as a command to have the sort of dynamic, Spirit-filled life where the Christian is led by inner promptings or maybe even by an audible voice from the Spirit. So it means to walk by the Spirit, they say. It's like He tells us what to do internally via our desires, and we listen and we yield to His promptings or feelings of peace or whatever they may be. When I'm not in a hurry, when I'm sensitive to that still small voice, that's walking by the Spirit, some say. So other times, though, walking by the Spirit is presented passively. 
as simply kind of letting the Spirit take over your life. Kind of a spiritual coup. But it's never actually defined. Okay, the Spirit takeover. What does it mean for God's Spirit to take over or to fill us or to lead us? And what's often implied is some positive experience or emotional state or some thought that He'll just kind of zap us with love. He'll change us, often in response to kind of a corporate worship night or something like that. We think that our obedience will be much easier from here on out because we've experienced the Spirit. We're walking by Him. We're kind of on a new plane in our sanctification. I'll never struggle with that same debilitating anxiety. I'll never have to claw my way out of bed for my morning reading. I'll never drift off in prayer. We expect that whatever the Spirit does in our lives, if I'm walking by the Spirit, my life of obedience should be easy. As we're going to see, that's that's not quite the picture in this passage in Galatians 5. So since we often don't have a lot of clarity here on what this command is and how to obey it, I want to take this morning and study it out with you. So let's ask, I think I have two more questions, is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Let's ask two more questions today, all right? First, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? So as we ask and answer these questions, they're going to help us to understand and obey this command to walk by the Spirit. And again, what the guys are going to do is they come up and they walk through each of these, each of these qualities like love, peace, joy, self-control. It's going to kind of be within this framework. So what does it mean? To walk by the Spirit. Well, you can think of these commands to, to, that Paul's giving here in this paragraph in, in 16 all the way through 20. Let's just read it. Hang on, let's back up. and We have, we have not actually read the passage. All right, chapter 5. We'll catch it in verse 13 so we can kind of get the whole context. For you were called to freedom, brothers. So... Christ has freed us by His death and resurrection on our behalf. And we've been given the Spirit. You are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Here's the initial command in our paragraph. But I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Here's another metaphor. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions... Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Cue the next command. If we live by the Spirit, command... Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So then, you can think of these commands here 
to walk by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, verse 25, as the way that Paul expects us to participate with the Spirit as he bears fruit in our lives. Make sense? Or else he wouldn't have commanded us to do something. It's the way that Paul expects us to participate with the Spirit as he bears fruit in our lives. The fruit is the Spirit's. We saw that last week. He produces it, and he produces it progressively. And he does it as we learn to, as Paul says here, walk by the Spirit. Now, we haven't defined it yet, but as we, as we walk by the Spirit, as we learn to keep in step with the Spirit. There's still another way Paul says that later on in chapter 6. We looked at that, and it's even more in keeping with this garden metaphor. In the second half of verse 8, Paul says, of chapter 6, Paul says, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So apparently, we're involved in this sowing activity to the Spirit if we want to see Him bear fruit in our lives. It's another way of highlighting our participation in the fruit production. So it's not a merely passive process. We've got to walk, we've got to keep in step, we've got to even sow to the Spirit. So what do these idioms then mean? What do, they, what do the metaphors mean? Well, let's take verse 16 and look at it real carefully. All right, he says walk, that's the command, walk. And he says by the Spirit. So walk, let's look at that first. It's a metaphor that Paul uses a lot. It's one of his favorite for the Christian life. When Paul tells us to walk, he's telling us to live our lives in a certain way. It's idiomatic for how we act, how we behave. And that part's very straightforward. Okay, That's not hard. Paul's instructing us to live our lives in a certain way. And that way is, he says, by the Spirit. And that's, at least that's how the majority of our translations render that phrase. In this case, Paul would be saying, if we're living by the Spirit, Paul would be saying that we should live our lives by the Spirit's enablement, by the Spirit's power. And that's certainly true, but it's still kind of vague. Another option would be to translate it like this. Walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. So in that sense, it would be live your life in reference to the Spirit, or even according to what the Spirit wants. And I think this makes a lot of sense in the context. So really, it's, you don't have anything that's going to lead you one way or the other other than the context in this, this passage. But I think both ideas, both senses are true. Both kind of this walk by the means of the Spirit, like by, by His power, and then also according to what He wants. And here's how I would bring these two ideas together in a, maybe a working definition here. Working definition of what it means to walk by the Spirit. Paul wants us to walk. He wants us to live our lives in reliance upon the Spirit's power and in obedience to His desires. To walk by the Spirit means to live our lives in reliance upon the Spirit's power and in obedience to His desires. He wants me to live in such a way that it manifests a calm confidence, a calm hope, a joy in the Spirit's transforming power in my life. That's that first part, living in reliance upon the Spirit. That's relying upon His power. And 
He wants me to live zealously seeking to obey the Spirit's desires instead of my own sinful craving. The desires of the flesh, he's going to talk about in just a minute. And again, it comes down to, to, like we said last week, to a life of faith. A life of faith. A life of entrusting myself to Christ's Spirit within me and learning to yield to Him in obedience in the various moments of my day and in the circumstances of my life. Now, before we move forward here, let's just take a moment and see how Paul's other expressions fill out what it means to walk in or by the Spirit. Verse 18 talks about being led by the Spirit. You see that? If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Verse 18, led by the Spirit. So when he's talking about being led by the Spirit, he's not talking about inner promptings for like non-moral decisions, like what girl to date or what to have for dinner. That's not how he's using this phrase, being led by the Spirit. This image is the Spirit is out in front of us. He's out in front of our lives and He has us by the hand. He's leading us in moral transformation. Moral transformation. Instead of resisting Him like a kid that's pulling on his parent's hand in the opposite direction when the parent's trying to go this way and the kid's trying to go this way, we should yield to Him. We're to, or to use this phrase down in verse 25, we're to keep in step with Him. Verse 25. So again, the kid picture of the kid's helpful, you know. You know, trying, parents trying to lead the kid, and the kid's just kind of leaning back, you know. But keeping in step with the parent just makes a whole world of difference in terms of what, the direction you're trying to go. Or I think we could change the metaphor a little bit in verse 25 because I think Paul does. And this "keep in step" is a is a wartime kind of word. So. The, the imagery would be the Spirit is our general, and He's leading us in battle, and we're to keep in step. We're to keep advancing, keep marching, keep battling against the enemy of our sinful cravings. And I think this is crucial to, to understand, the sort of battle idea that involves being led by the Spirit. Because he's leading us into a battle against our fleshly desires and against the evil that they produce. And Paul says this very same thing over in Romans 8. So if you keep your finger here, this is super interesting. Because I would have not connected this, meta, this idea of being led by the Spirit with war. But he does here. Chapter 8, verse 13. Romans eight thirteen. he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, notice that, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So just note in that verse, the Spirit is helping you wage war against the deeds of your body, which are, are the deeds, the actions, are produced by those desires of your flesh. And the idea, that's how those, those ideas come together. So the Spirit's helping you kill the desires of the body. Now notice this. For all who are, what does it say? Led by the Spirit. 
are sons of God. So, the Spirit helps us kill the deeds of the body, the deeds that are produced by our fleshly desires, and in the same breath, Paul describes the people who are putting sin to death by the Spirit's power as those people who are being led by the Spirit. You see the connection? To be led by the Spirit is to be waging war against your sinful desires by His power. There's the connection. So to walk by the Spirit, to be led by Him, this isn't a leisurely stroll across campus. This is a march, it's a campaign, and the battle is intense. So flip back over to Galatians. just want you to see that connection in Paul's mind between being led and it being a war. Say Galatians 6. Keep saying that. Galatians 5. So it's a march that being led by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit is a march, is a campaign, the battle is intense. But the general who's leading us gives Paul tremendous confidence. The Holy Spirit. Paul guarantees in the strongest terms possible that as we're learning to walk by the Spirit, as we're learning to trust Him and yield to His truth, that we will not, we'll certainly not, gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 16. How can he say that? How can he say it with that level of confidence? We certainly, we will. It is absolutely certain. It's kind of the way it would be rendered. Absolutely certain. We, we will certainly not gratify the desires of the flesh. Does Paul misunderstand the power of our sinful impulses? Does he not get the power of the sin patterns in my life? Oh, Paul understands but he knows the superior power of the Spirit who has been freely given to you. And they are at war against each other. The Spirit's desires and your flesh. That's what he says in verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, Paul's point here is that although you have strong fleshly impulses, there is a new sheriff in town. He's dwelling within your heart, and he is stronger than the fleshly impulses. He is capable, and he often does keep your flesh from carrying out what you want to do. Before you had the Spirit, do you realize there were no other options for you except to indulge in your flesh? was your only other option. You thought you were free, but you were actually completely enslaved to your fleshly desires. For some, it may have been acceptable sins like anxiety, gossip, living to please people, being irritable. For others, it may have been more obvious like sexual lust, drunkenness, seething resentment. Whatever the case, and the, the desires of the flesh are legion, right? You were enslaved to them. You had no power over them, but you would continually give in to them again and again. You wanted to do them, and you were willingly enslaved. And you even likely thought that you were free before Christ. But now, Paul says, it's different. It's different. Now you've been forgiven. Now you've been cleansed. Now you've been empowered by God's very Spirit. Spirit. 
Now he brings conviction and a new sensitivity. Now you see your sin for what it is, and you also have ears to hear his promises. Slowly but surely, the Spirit is renewing you from the inside out. It may not always be pretty, but he's teaching you the truth. It's coming sermon after sermon, verse after verse. It's going to be slow, but you're learning to believe him to believe His Word in the moments of your life, above what you feel, above what your flesh wants in the moment. And you're learning to act on what you know instead of what you feel. But why? Why do you even want to do that? According to this passage, it's because God has given you His Spirit. And the Spirit's desires are against the desires of your flesh. They are in opposition, yes, but the Spirit is ultimately greater and He is often keeping you from fulfilling what your flesh wants and He is committed to producing beautiful fruit in the place of those fleshly desires. And if you're experiencing this as slow as it may seem, if you're led by the Spirit, Paul says in verse 18, then you're not under the law. And what he means here, I think, is that you're not under the curse of the law. The fact that the Spirit is given in your life, the fact that He's leading you like this, it shows that you are a member of the new covenant. That the Lord has forgiven your sins once and for all. That you are no longer under the curse that you once were. And back before you were saved, you, before you had God's Spirit, you probably tried to clean up your act a little bit, try to perform for the Lord, but you constantly transgressed. The law, God's standard for your perfect righteousness, only condemned you. If you thought you met it, you were self-righteous, you were critical, and you were judgmental of the people around you. If you thought that you could never measure up, then you would be angry, guilty, resentful, depressed, and anxious. But now you've realized that Christ has done all the measuring up for you. He's fulfilled the law on your behalf and now freely gives us His Spirit. He gives it to all who look on Him by faith. The only condition is you've got to come with empty hands. You've got to come naked. You've got to come spiritually impoverished. And and He's given you His own life-transforming Spirit in exchange for that impoverishment. The Spirit... Maybe I I think I'm going to wrap this series up by doing a theology of the Spirit um, at the end. Because the Spirit is God's answer to the transformation of humanity. People could not obey under the Old Covenant for any, like, prolonged period of time. You think even even the the patriarchs did this. You think about how their, their failures continued. They persisted. And they almost got worse. Think Solomon. And the answer to the old covenant is the Spirit. And He is given freely to us. So take His hand. Let Him lead you. Keep in step with Him. Walk with Him. Meaning, live your life in reliance upon the Spirit's power and in obedience to His desires. So, think great, Clay. Clarifying, but still not very practical. Like, how does this, how do do we do it? How do we actually walk by the Spirit? What does this look like? Now, I'm going to kind of give you some of these in rapid fire, 
but I don't think there will be new ideas. Okay, so we'll go we'll go through them a little little faster. How do we do this? Well, it starts with looking away from yourself and assuring yourself that you have God's promised Spirit. Because everything rides on whether or not you have the Spirit. (laughs) If you don't have the Spirit, you will not change. But if you have the Spirit, you will change. So if doubts are floating around in your mind about whether or not you've received God's Spirit, you've got to solve these first. So how do you get the Spirit? Well, he says in Galatians 3, 1 and 2 that it comes by faith, by believing the Gospel. He says in verse 2, let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer is obviously hearing with faith. That's how this new covenant spirit is received. You hear the gospel and you respond to the gospel in faith. And that's when Paul says you receive the spirit. It's when you heard the gospel, believing it, not because you deserve the spirit in any way at all. You didn't merit his coming, his being given to you. You came spiritually impoverished. You heard about your sin. You agreed with God's assessment. And you availed yourself of God's solution, which is Jesus. The Spirit is and always will be a free and gracious gift to you, totally apart from your works. And in fact, have you, have you understood and believed anything in the Bible? Any truth? Because over in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says that any insight into the truth, any submission to the truth, is because the Spirit has granted you that insight and ability. 1 Corinthians 2, 6-16. through Any insight and submission to the truth, any glad reception of the truth by faith, came via the Spirit. Not through you. Another question. Has the Lord used you to encourage His church as you use your gifts? Paul says, again in in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this time, Paul says that any gift you have was given to you by the Spirit Himself. Like the Spirit apportioned those gifts to each of you. So if you have a gift and you're using it for edification in the body, He gave it to you means he's with you. He's dwelling within you. And, Paul goes on to say, not only did he give it to you, but he also empowers you as you use it. He makes your gifts effective in the life of the body. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. So if you're not sure that you've received God's Spirit, if you have Him, there's only one condition to receiving it. And that is throwing yourself in faith upon the mercy of Christ. Jesus says it this way over in the Gospel of Luke. He says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? He's a good Father. We know we need the Spirit. We know we need Christ. We know we need divine enablement. He will gladly give the Spirit. He won't give us a snake. The Spirit is God's merciful gift 
to His people to make us lastingly obedient. So, first step to walking by the Spirit, we've got to assure ourselves that we have God's promised Spirit. Next. We've got to know and call to mind often what you've gained by the Spirit's presence in your life. So the fact that you have Him, that He's been given to you, means there's new realities have taken place in your life. What are some of those? Well, Romans 8.2. You can just write these references down, but I'll, Romans 8.2. The Spirit has set me free from enslavement to sin. So, regardless of what you feel, regardless of your experience, regardless of how defeated you feel, you are not enslaved to sin anymore based on the Word of God and the gift of the Spirit in your life. Romans 8.2 Another benefit is the Spirit helps me in prayer. Romans 8.26-27 In my weakness, I don't even know how I'm supposed to pray a lot of times. The Spirit is interceding for me. is translating my prayers to the Father, making them effective, constantly praying for me. The Spirit helps us in prayer. The Spirit's desires are ultimately greater than my fleshly impulses. Right here from Galatians 5. So no matter how hot the battle is, feels, His desires are greater than my fleshly impulses, which guarantees that He will change me. Another benefit. The Spirit is God's solution to my former inability to obey. You can write down Ezekiel 36.27. The Spirit is God's solution to my former inability to obey Him. That's why He's given Him to me. And finally, the Spirit will one day raise me from the dead and He will glorify me. Meaning He's going to change me completely on that final day. Romans 8, 10 and 11. So you've got to know these realities. You have to call them to mind. You've got to call them to mind often about what you've gained by this Spirit's presence in your life, if you're going to walk by the Spirit. Next, you've got to actively entrust yourself to the Spirit's care and to His transforming power. So again, this is all sort of this first half of our definition of walking by the Spirit to, to live by His power and trust ourselves to the Spirit's power. This is actively entrusting yourself to His care, transforming power. So we have to have our minds renewed that we actually have the Spirit, what He's done for us, that's B, and now C, actively entrust ourselves to His care and to His transforming power. And I wrote down Romans 8-9 because right there Paul says that if the Spirit of God dwells within us, then we are, quote, in the Spirit meaning we're in His domain, we're under His care. He's taken up residence within you to empower you to change, and so then our response should be an entrustment of ourselves to Him each day. And it would sound something like this. Holy Spirit, thank You for so graciously residing in me. The sin I face today feels great, but I am in Your care. I am under Your mighty power today, and I entrust myself to Your care. I cannot and dare not try to care for myself. That's what an active entrustment would sound like at the beginning of your day. Again, looking away from ourselves. Next, 
Walking by the Spirit looks like praying that the Spirit would work in your life and trusting that He will work over time. When I say praying that the Spirit would work in your life, this isn't some anxious prayer that you're just kind of hoping He might answer. This is a prayer that you know He will answer and is delighted to answer, and so we want to pray by faith. Pray trusting that He will answer this over time. Then I wrote down a few examples of these prayers from Ephesians. Because Paul prays for the Spirit in Ephesians 1 to provide increased revelation about God, that we might know the hope to which He's called us, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us. And he prays that God would give us a spirit of wisdom in these things. Not that we don't have the spirit, but it's a, an increased experience of the spirit in his illuminating work on our behalf. He also asks the Father to strengthen us with the spirit's power in our inner man over in Ephesians 3. So that Christ would dwell in our, in our hearts, in our inner man, on the throne of our hearts, as we learn to trust Him more and more. Again, just two examples of Paul praying that the Spirit would would work in our lives. We have examples of prayers to help us understand and prayers to help us obey. So as you ask Him to work, know that He will and ask joyfully and expectantly and yet patiently knowing that the Spirit plays a long game in His fruit production. And I was reading a book recently and came across this prayer that John Stott prayed every day. And I won't read the whole thing to you, but one thing I loved, this prayer request, is he daily asks the Spirit to, he says, ripen his fruit in, in his life. And I, just, I thought that was just a great image. Like, ripen the fruit that you're producing. Give me, you know, produce that, produce that in my life today. So, this looks like praying that the Spirit would work in your life, trusting that He will. Next, align your heart and your will to the Spirit's fruit-bearing agenda in your life. Align your heart and your will to the Spirit's fruit-bearing agenda in your life. Paul says over in Romans 8, Five and six that we're to, that that uh, he describes the spiritual people as those who set their mind on the things of the spirit. Setting our minds on the things of the spirit. So what does that mean? Well, I think the idea is we're we're aligning ourselves to what the spirit desires and the truth that the spirit is is bringing to us through the word of God. There's an alignment that needs to take place. I need to bring myself underneath. I need to actively set my mind on the things of the Spirit. And that looks like, you know, in my daily life, I often have to remind myself that the most important thing today is that I entrust myself to the Lord. And that His Spirit bears His fruit in my life. That's the most important thing. That's the most rewarding thing. That's the most productive process I could ever ask for. In every situation today, whether my plans are fulfilled or not, I have the capacity for joy, for peace, for love, for fruitfulness through the Spirit's power in my life, and I want to align myself 
with that agenda today. And this is nothing different than the mind renewal process that Paul talks about in so many other places like Romans 12, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3. So again, walking by the Spirit, if we're going to walk by Him, if we're going to follow the Spirit, we've got to align our heart and our will to the Spirit's fruit-bearing agenda. And then these, we'll hit these very fast because these are going to be what the guys cover. But we need to identify and kill the recurring works of the flesh over time. Identify and kill the recurring works of the flesh over time. And Paul, in part, gives us an example in this passage of what these works of the flesh are so that we know where the battle is. So take those works of the flesh and learn about them through this study as the guys walk through the fruit and the corresponding things that the fruit is in place of. Determine what most plagues your spiritual life where the flesh has a stronghold in your life, and make a battle plan for how you're going to put it to death. Think through what lies you're believing in that area. How does God's Word come to bear in this area? How does it motivate you and warn you? What's your plan to get it memorized? And trust Him in the process as you go to war. Remember, He's your general leading you Ask Him for power and insight as you learn about your enemy. Remember, according to Romans 8, He is by the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body. Next, actively seek and cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. This is in tune with Paul's put-on process in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. We're obviously going to be learning about this each week as we study the various aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. And suffice it to say here that once you've got the area that you're working on and you're renewing your mind in it, you've got to obey. You've got to yield to the Spirit and what He wants above what you want in that moment of temptation. So plot that out. What, what would it look like to actually respond with Christ's love to that annoying coworker? How might you extend graciousness and kindness to that roommate? What is your plan to show them kindness today when you least want to, when the desires of the flesh are most potent? How will you rejoice today even though you're st- you've still not been able to get that job transferred and you're still taking lots of heat for being a Christian? How are you going re- to rejoice? You have the opportunity. Plot it out. Think through how you're going to obey and actively seek to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. Last one here. Thank the Lord and rejoice whenever you obey, realizing that the Spirit led you in that obedience. This is a great mystery. It involves our participation, but He is the one undergirding it all. He's given us new inclinations, new power, so anytime that we step out in faith, anytime we, we, we act in obedience to Him, anytime we, we take that step to renew our minds and do that hard thing. Any of the tiniest acts of obedience, when you obey by faith, that's more fuel for the fire of assurance. That's point number one, or A. It's not on your screen anymore. As the Spirit works in your life, He gives you more and more assurance that you really have received Him, and He really is at work in your life. And this, this is only the beginning. 
The Spirit is the first fruits of all that we will receive in the new creation. We're just starting to scratch the surface with the gift He is to us, the indwelling Christ within us, as that sort of guarantee that we are going to receive our inheritance in the new creation, in the resurrection. And so when you see the Spirit's work in your life, rejoice. Thank God for that His new power, His own presence that's forever abiding in you and forever transforming you. All right? So next week, Tuck is going to teach us about the fruit of love. And we're going to look, we're going to get into that next time and how, what it is and how it's cultivated. And uh, we're looking forward to kind of doing a, a deep dive in some of these, these attitudes and attributes and thinking through how we can cultivate them in our lives. All right, so that is, that's what the walk by the Spirit means, entrustment to Christ, entrustment to His Spirit, and we do it just by actively seeking to obey Him. All right, let's pray. Spirit, we do thank You for how You flooded our lives, how You're the answer to our, our sin and our lack of growth, our deadness. You've given us life. You've given us insight. You're committed to us, to leading us into transformation and to leading us into the new creation. Just like your spirit guided the Israelites through the wilderness and into the, into the promised land, so your spirit guides us today as the people of God. Through this wasteland, through the works of the flesh, through the world that's hostile to us, and yet as a fruit-bearing tree, both now and in the age to come. Help us see these things, Spirit. Illumine the eyes of our hearts that we would perceive this. Give us power to obey. And we ask it by faith in Jesus' name. Amen.